They say the owl was a baker's daughter. Lord, we know what we are, but not what we may be. What is man that thou art mindful of? The son of man that thou visitest him. An aged man is but a paltry thing. A tattered coat upon a stick. Unless soul clap its hands and sing, and louder sing for every tatter in its mortal dress. For the billions and billions of strange objects in the cosmos, you are beyond doubt the strangest. But behind the scenes, in the green room, you might say in the very back of your mind, in the very depths of your soul, you always have a very tiny sneaking suspicion that you might not be the you that you think you are. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, fellow travelers along the way, welcome to another episode of the Avalon Mentors Podcast. In this series, we are exploring together the Republic, or Politeia in Greek, of Plato. Written in Greek in 375 BC, the work stands as one of the most riveting and influential works of Western culture. So join me now as we continue our journey through Plato's The Republic. have to start uh, each episode with a few like caveats you know and disclaimers and things like that just for the sake of clarity and uh, this hopefully won't be too often that I do this but I, I you know I make mistakes I hate to say it I'll make a public disclosure here and come out to the world to say um, I'm human and I make mistakes and I don't know everything so there it is uh, there's some stuff I actually have to look up and uh, some things I don't even know yet surprise surprise so there it is and I think last time, the first episode when I was doing the overview, 
I think I said that Plato's name, which means broad or wide, same name we get for like plate or like a, a you know, the, the plate we eat off of, but also a plate as in a uh, tectonic plate, cliff, uh, broad. Um, that name comes because Plato was originally a wrestler and a big guy. And then I said that his name was Ariston originally, that his actual name was Ariston. That's not accurate. His father was Ariston. He was Aristocles, meaning the best reputation. So his father was the best, Ariston, and he was the best reputation. Aristos means the best, as an aristocracy, a rule by the best. So hopefully I didn't cause you any pain if you went to a party and you said, hey, Plato's name was Ariston, and you know you didn't, you struck out because of that. I'm sorry. Uh, I apologize. Hopefully next time. You can go to the same party and say, hey, Plato's name was Aristocles, and you know everything will go smoothly, and people will buy you drinks. And if they don't, it's not entirely my fault. So with that out of the way, hopefully that's the only mistake I made, and hopefully this time I won't make mistakes either. Uh, and if I do, in next episode, I'll give another disclaimer. Let's move on to talk about the text. Now, if you recall last time during the introduction... I made the claim that Plato is not really a philosopher. He's actually a myth maker. And I still stand by that claim. He's seen as a philosopher because he uses philosophy in order to have a vehicle to, uh, to drive his, his, um, his myth making. But I don't think he's initially, I don't think he's primarily about ph- philosophical understanding. He's about really about, more about uh, spiritual building or uh, soul building or world building, if you want. Um, and part of this is like saying that Shakespeare was primarily a, um, a tactician or that Shakespeare was primarily an historian. He's not. I mean, he uses tactics, military or linguistic tactics on stage, or he uses history on stage, or he uses murder on stage, or he uses um, subterfuge on stage in order to drive his play. But his main purpose is not to show murder. It's not to show real history. His main purpose is to talk about human nature, the human psyche, Shakespeare's. And I think Plato's main purpose is to create for us mythology, a mythological worldview that then we can um, understand what he's really getting at. And I think, I think we see this first when we look at the very cast of characters that show up in this, in this dialogue. In The Republic, we have a series of characters that meet together over a dinner party, and they are all of them part of the pers- uh, dramatis personae, you know, the people in the play. And like in Shakespeare's plays, these people carry with them a certain level of baggage. So like in the play Julius Caesar by Shakespeare, well, there's an historical Julius Caesar, and he has a history attached to him. And there's an historical uh, Marcus Brutus, and there's a, an historical uh, Livy and Cicero and all these other characters from history who in Shakespeare's play carry that baggage with them to the play. So you, you're, you're not going to see Julius Caesar do certain things or you're going to understand that Mark Antony ends up a certain way outside of the play and it contributes to how he acts in the play. Same thing here. The characters as we go through them is Socrates, who's the main character. There's Glaucon, Polemarchus, Adamantus, Cephalus, there's Thrasymachus, Clytophon, Commentides, Euthydemus, 
Lysias, and Nicaratus. And one of the first things we have to acknowledge here is that historically all these characters are in one way or another involved in the death of Socrates. They're all involved in the death of Socrates. Now, I'm not going to go into detail on all of them because maybe it would be fun for you to look them up, find out who this character is or what this character is, but all of them were involved in the downfall of Athens after the Peloponnesian War with the Spartans, and then they were all involved either as sympathetic towards Socrates or antagonistic to Socrates. They're involved in the killing of Socrates. So it's a little bit like, I don't know, it's a little bit like having a guy in the middle of a pack of wolves talking to the pack of wolves. Although it's all cheerful and it's all kind of um, a, a brotherly love sort of thing going on, there is this looming historical fact that some of these guys sat on the jury that condemned Socrates to death. So let me go through at least a few things here to point out. Socrates, who is that philosopher who roamed around and he smelled like garlic and he annoyed people and he had his beard pulled frequently and got punched in the face for asking questions that people didn't want to ask, is the main character in this dialogue. Socrates is the tutor of Plato, among others. Notice Plato doesn't show up in the dialogue as a character. The name Socrates in Greek means unbroken power. Unbroken power. So maybe that contributes somewhat to why he is the main character, Socrates. He's one unbroken character among all these other characters. And I think Plato's seeing in this man a man of courage, a man of questioning, a man of seeking truth and things, and was even in the face of death, as you read in the death dialogues, even in the face of death, Socrates was unafraid. He was unbroken by the desire of other people for him to become a sycophant or to become a, um, a tool of the state. He never did. He remained true to his ideals. And I think for Plato, this becomes, this is sort of like what we want to be as heroes, as courageous men on earth. So a little note, like Plato temper tampers with uh sorry, he tampers with history to a certain degree because uh one aspect of it is that he, socrates in history was condemned by the state to death and forced to drink hemlock and when you read the death dialogues which i encourage you to read the crito the uh the meno um when you read these uh the phaedo you you find that socrates takes the hemlock and he grows he lies down and he grows cold from his feet to his legs, to his body, and then he falls asleep. And it's very peaceful. It's very, very quiet. That's not the way hemlock works, though, because hemlock is kind of like arsenic or cyanide. It actually causes immense cramping interiorly, and then you start vomiting and you start having bowel release, and it's just horrible, and you just, you die shaking and vomiting and cramping all over, and it's just a nasty business. So why would Plato take that horrible death and convert it in his dialogues into this very peaceful, almost, almost uh, idyllic form of death? Now, Plato's doing something with the character. So although there's an historic Socrates, we have to distinguish to some degree between that historical character and the character Plato's trying to hold up as an ideal for us. The next character, Glaucon, 
who is actually the main interlocutor. You could even say he's the protagonist if you see this as a drama. Because Socrates is not the protagonist. He's not the main sufferer. Proto-agonistes means main sufferer. It's actually Glaucon. Glaucon is the brother of Plato. So in a way, it's like Plato is sitting in on this dialogue through his brother, even though he's not really there. But Glaucon's problem, if I may put it in a few words, Glaucon's problem is that he has been raised to be a politician. His family, Ariston's family, were all raised to go into political life in one way or the other. They're part of the aristocracy, you know, the wealthy families. And the wealthy families of Greece, Athens especially, their sons were supposed to enter politics. That's what they're supposed to do. And Glaucon all his life has been given the, uh, the training to enter into public life, that, uh, that sophistic training and being able to speak well and have good rhetoric and to uh, do the things that politicians, and politicians are supposed to do. And what we find with the character of Glaucon is that he is suffering a terrible malady at the opening of this drama, of this uh, dialogue. Glaucon is suffering because all his life he has been told that politics is the way to go. Politics is the answer. There's nothing more than politics. There is no afterlife. There is no nothing beyond this world. There is no greater beauty. We're only supposed to enter into politics and rule ourselves in this present moment. And what I think we see at the very start is that Glaucon has a certain spiritual malaise. You know, they say that in a good drama, the protagonist normally suffers from a lie. It's called the lie the character believes. And in order to move the character from the normal world, the, the world of, the, uh, of the, um, the Shire, so to speak, in Tolkien's language, you have to have something or somebody come to him and draw him out of that normal world and show him that the lie that he believes is not true. It's a lie. And through a series of adventures and struggles and temptations and uh, uh, victories, that character should come to recognize his doppelganger, his equal and opposite, what he could become or what he could be. Like, like, uh, like Bilbo confronting Gollum. And when he overcomes his doppelganger, then he can go on to face his real enemy, his nemesis, Darth Vader, right, with Luke Skywalker there at, uh, in Bespin. And by conquering his real enemy, his nemesis, the character, the protagonist, can then achieve a greatness that he can bring back to his own people, a vision of the beauty of the afterlife, or a vision of the beauty of the world, or a vision of the greatness of man. Glaucon has this issue where he doesn't see anything beyond this world as important. We find this out in book two, so I'm not giving things away entirely, but um, we'll see it in book two. But that's the main problem. Glaucon is like a lost soul, a soul that has gone down into Hades or is close to going down into Hades and down into darkness and not getting out. So in a way, it's, it is as though he is Persephone going down into the underworld. Or you could say uh, in another myth, he is kind of like Eurydice with Orpheus. Now, if you don't know the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, here, let me tell it to you quickly because it's important that you keep this in the back of the mind 
when you read the dialogue. Plato is always in the back of his head keeping these various myths suspended so that they come up every now and then in the dialogue and he bases parts of his dialogue on various myths. The story of Orpheus and Eurydice, Orpheus was the greatest artist of his time, he was the greatest singer, the greatest poet, and he could charm animals, he could make the trees dance, he was that good as a musician, and he loved this girl, Eurydice. But Eurydice died, she caught a sickness and she died, and Orpheus sought the world over for her until he found out that he was, she was in the underworld. So he goes down to the underworld and he makes a contract with uh, Hades, the lord of the underworld, well, actually, it's with Persephone, because Persephone has a, a soft heart for him. But he makes a contract with uh, uh, Pluto, with Hades. And Hades allows him to take Eurydice out of the underworld if Orpheus walks in front of her playing his lyre. She will follow, and he cannot look back at her until she comes back out into the light, completely out into the light. If he looks back at her, she will fade and have to go back to the underworld. Well, of course, uh, Orpheus in the story does look back right when they're about to enter into the world of light. He loses confidence, loses faith. He looks back and she disappears before his eyes like a shade fading away. So all art is remembering things, remembering, to put the members of the thing back together. That lost beauty, that lost love, that lost possibility. In this, Glaucon is like Eurydice. He is broken apart. He is lost in the underworld. He's in the darkness. And that means that Socrates, to a certain degree, has to be the Orpheus to bring him back, to bring him back out into the light. So you see, from the very start, we have immediately, if you'd come on the stage, for instance, you say, my characters are Socrates and Glaucon. And people would know, oh, Glaucon, yeah, okay. Right? Or if you came on stage and you said, my characters are Orpheus and Eurydice, or gave the images of Orpheus and Eurydice, that would immediately show people that uh, this is what we're talking about. You're talking about somebody being saved from darkness and brought back into light. So when we go through the dialogue, there'll be places where we notice Glaucon speaking particularly, and it's important to note what Glaucon says because it is indicative of his malady. Now other characters in the play, just really quickly, Polemarchus and Adamantus are also brothers of Plato. They, uh, they themselves do enter into politics, and um, Polemarchus himself was executed by the Thirty, the tyrants later on. Um, and Cephalus, who is the old man who uh, does join with them, oh sorry, Polemarchus is not Plato's brother, Adamantus is. Cephalus is the father of Polemarchus, and he starts off our, our discussion. Cephalus means the head, Polemarchus means the, I think it's the, the, the warlike one, right? the Pol Polemus, he is the warlike one. And um, then you get the character Thrasymachus, and Thrasymachus is the impudent fighter, is what that means, the Thrasymachus, he's impudent, Im impudent fighter. He is a teacher of rhetoric there in, uh, in Athens. And then you get various uh, non-speaking roles or slight speaking roles are like spirit carriers, Clytophon, Carmentides, Euthydemus, Lysias, and Nicaratus. That's the dramatis personae, and that's what starts us off in this dialogue. And it sets the stage immediately knowing the characters to know where we're headed and what we're going to be doing here. 
So we talked a little bit about character. The other thing to talk about in a literary work is the setting, because the setting always has influence on what's going on in a text. The setting here is the Piraeus of, of uh, the Athens area. So you had the city of Athens and you had the city of Piraeus very close to one another. Piraeus is down near the port area, down near the water. Athens is primarily up on a hill leading up to a large outcropping of rock, a volcanic outcropping of rock that was used as a fortress when invading tribes would come down descending upon the people and they would ransack the area and the locals would go into that fortress area of the Acropolis, the Acropolis, the high city. That's where the Parthenon eventually is built during the Peloponnesian War. And you, it's a very high holy place where Athena has her, her temple, her Parthenos, her virginal area. Parthenos is, means the, the virgin, so Athena Parthenos is the Athena virginal. And that high city is, is up high in the, in the air, you know, you get fresh air blowing through there and birds and the open sky. And, and like any time we talk about being up on a mountain in literature, we talk about something close to heaven, something free and open and, and full of possibility. Piraeus, on the other hand, is close to the ocean, and so it's lower down than the Piraeus, or than the than the Acropolis. It's uh, closer to water. It's closer to um, uh, sort of the, the murky part of the world. It's a port city, and so ships come in from all over the Mediterranean, and you have a, a polyglot of people talking with each other, and you have um, you have different trades, different cultures intermingling with one another. It's far more democratic, if you will. It's also a city with, as a port city, there's a red light area, you know, red light district, you know, crime and prostitution and um, probably a, f more, a filthier part of the, of the city, a darker part of the city. It's more um, base, if you will. So the Piraeus has certain merchant men who have become very wealthy through trade who live there. And one of those is Cephalus, and that's where our main part of our story takes place, is in the home of a wealthy trader uh, who uh, basically uh, starts off our dialogue. Now that has bearing on the story, as we'll see later. There's the high city of the Acropolis, and there's the low city of Piraeus, a high and a low. Piraeus also means the deep pit, the deep pit. Primarily because the Piraeus was originally, it was, uh, it was a pit. There was a huge like, like mining operation in that area, which made this deep pit uh, close to the water. And I think it was probably a quarry, perhaps, where they were quarrying stone, and then they'd put it on boats and, and send it out. So the Piraeus was named after the deep pit. And that's important to note, too, as we'll see later on. Because it's not just that it's the city of trade or the democratic part of the uh, city or that it was a dark, seedy part of the city. It's also that the city itself, the very name, means the dark pit. So kind of like um, when uh, in uh, Crime and Punishment, where Dostoevsky uh, has the whole city, has the whole story uh, centered in, in, in St. Petersburg. And St. Petersburg was a center that was created by the Enlightenment in order to show that man had mastery over the world. And so they built the whole city on a swamp to show that a modern technology can conquer even a swamp. 
Well, of course, what happened there was that people caught diseases on a regular basis, and there was tuberculosis on a regular basis, and there was mosquitoes and nasty living conditions because they really couldn't conquer nature entirely. But that didn't stop people from continuing to try to conquer nature. We're still at it today. The point being is that Dostoevsky sets his story, Crime and Punishment, in an Enlightenment city which tries to conquer the base part of man, and his main character is engaged in Enlightenment ideas, especially the ideas of Nietzsche's Ubermensch, in order to conquer his baser self, and he fails. So the setting has bearing upon the character. And I'm sorry if I gave a spoiler there for, uh, for Dostoevsky, maybe which is a spoiler alert. <laughs> you know, Raskolnikov fails. Sorry. Um, here we've got the Piraeus being the deep pit having a bearing upon what we're going to be talking about. Remember, I just said that Glaucon is like Eurydice, and he's gone into this deep pit of hell, the deep pit of the world of Hades, which is a worldview that says there's nothing more than this material life. There's nothing to look forward to. It's all just politics. And that's kind of like, in Plato's mind, it's kind of like a hell. And so he's gone into this deep pit. And Socrates playing Orpheus has to draw him out. Well, how does Orpheus draw out Eurydice? But by art, by music, by words. In a similar way, Socrates, i.e. Plato, is going to be drawing Glaucon out using art, words, mythology. This is the primary reason why Plato is a myth-maker more than a philosopher. Because philosophy, sorry philosophers, Philosophy doesn't actually save. Art or myth or worldview saves more than philosophy does. So to craft a whole worldview, one has to have a a mythological understanding of what beauty is or what truth is or what goodness is. Not necessarily a philosophical one, at least according to Plato. So here then is the opening of the text. Now I'm using Alan Bloom's text. Whatever text you're using, follow along if you can or, or just listen because I'll be reading sections here. We start off the text here with Socrates being the main speaker of the play. So really the whole play is Socrates speaking. Keep that in mind because it's like it's a dialogue within a dialogue. Whom is Socrates speaking to? Or to whom is he speaking? To whom is he delivering this entirely, uh, this entire dialogue, this very long work? To whom does he have to stand and make account for himself? Well, there it is. So he's talking in first person to narrate this story. And then everything else after this, all this interloc- interlocutor business where he's talking with other people, is really coming from the character Socrates. He says, in Bloom's translation, I went down to the Piraeus yesterday with Glaucon, son of Ariston, to pray to the goddess. And at the same time, I wanted to observe how they would put on the festival, since they were now holding it for the first time. Now, in my opinion, the procession of the native inhabitants was fine, but the one Thracians conducted was no less fitting a show. After we had prayed and looked on, we went off toward town. So that first word, notice, is I went down in Greek, kata bain. Kata bain. I went down. 
I descended from a high place to a low. And I came down from that high airy part of the Acropolis where I normally spend my time talking with people. And I came down to the Piraeus. Now, why does he start off the dialogue that way? Why doesn't he just say, I was in the Piraeus? Remember, this isn't history. It's not giving a blow-by-blow account of what happened. This is Plato intentionally choosing movement of plot and character dialogue and words, specific words, in order to get across this point. One of the things to consider is that in the ancient world, opening lines are extremely important. Still true in, in many different genres. You know, Shakespeare's plays, opening lines are important. Certain movies, the opening line is important. What the character says at the beginning reveals something about them. So I went down. There's, a, there's an element of not condescension here, but of almost of mercy. You could stay in that high ivory tower your whole life and just be very happy with yourself and very self-satisfied. But to go down to other people to other places is to in some ways humble yourself it's as though you go down in order to help others or you go down in order to mingle with others because you don't want to stay constantly in that cerebral world staying up there in the high and lofty ideas although it's 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 wonderful it's airy and light and beautiful doesn't do anybody else any good and so there's an obligation for people that know the difference or for people that have learned things to actually go and spread that to others. If you don't, it's, a, it's like you're hoarding treasure. And so going down to that Piraeus area, going down to that lower place is in some ways it's a merciful act on the part of somebody who has been up in that high realm, that high and lofty realm. Socrates himself seems to indicate that he goes down particularly because he's drawn by something. But he also goes down with someone. That is, he goes down with Glaucon, Plato's brother. And they both together descend into that dark place, into that pit, into that Piraeus. Now, none of that, of course, is part of the the literal sense, right? Because he doesn't say, I went down into the dark pit with Glaucon, but the, the, the connotation is there that to go down into that realm with Glaucon is important to note. And he goes down particularly to pay his devotions to the goddess. Well, who is this goddess? The goddess is Bendis, uh, 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 an Eastern goddess. And she is, if I'm not mistaken, a goddess of death and resurrection. So at the start, he's going down in order to see this new goddess who's just come in, right? New being like um, within the generation or so, that she's been brought in, the worship of her has been brought in by various people who come to the city to trade and drop off their stuff. And now they're, they've established enough people there who believe in Bendis that they're going to have a little festival for, for this new goddess. And... Um, Socrates is interested, and so is Glaucon. So the two of them go down there to see this festival of the goddess, you know, going down to see like a summer festival or, you know, um, a maypole festival of some kind. And I wonder about this because I wonder whether Socrates chooses to go down by himself and Glaucon tags along, or whether Socrates is aware of Glaucon's problem 
takes him along in order to show him this new thing, this new goddess. Because if it is the second one, uh, that, that rings very true. Sometimes the old gods, the old way of doing things, doesn't work for the next generation or the next generation. And I think that people who have been around for a while have to acknowledge that the old ways, although they are great, sometimes have to take on new manifestations for young folks, for younger people. If there's a chance of getting younger people through the trauma and trial and difficulty of life with any semblance of intactness, perhaps the old God has to take on a new form. Now, that doesn't mean blasphemy or that doesn't mean um, that you have to uh, make him silly or something because I think that most people respond to silliness with silliness. But what it does mean is that you have to look and see, is, are we delivering the message in the best form? Or are we simply clinging to tradition because it's tradition? Socrates was frequently accused of being an iconoclast, that is, he was somebody who undermined the old gods or who destroyed old images. And he readily agrees that the old gods he honors, but he sees new gods as important too. And I think that was because he was very concerned with how is the message delivered, the message of death and resurrection, the message of being able to hang on long enough to get through this awful time so you can get to something better. And if Bendis, this new goddess from the East, was appropriate for getting that message across, Socrates would go down to pay devotion to her. Not an act of blasphemy an act of recognition. He also says, I wish to see how they would conduct the festival, because it was their inauguration. So he's also interested in the festival. How do you go about conducting yourself, worshiping? Uh, and he gives a judgment afterwards, which is kind of funny. Right? It was all very nice, all very good. They, they did well. It was a good, a good thing. Now, immediately after that, they get accosted, and they get accosted by certain characters who, who are also wealthy, they're the son of Cephalus, and they see him and they, they invite him to uh, a party. But they don't just invite him. They actually insist on forcing him to come. So son, Polemarchus, the son of Cephalus and others, come up to him and they, and they basically say, if you uh, come with us, that's great, but you see there's more of us than of you. So if you refuse to come, we can force you. And here's a big problem with the whole philosophic experiment, because if you're trying to convince people philosophically of things, you run into the problem that frequently people don't want to know, and there are more of them than there are of us. Those who want to know are normally a small group, and they have to stand up to the, the, the large portion of people who don't want to know. So it's, it's an indicator, a foreshadowing, if you will, something that Socrates says later, that just people are few and far between. Those who want to know are few and far between. And what we come up against is that we come up against a large portion of people who really don't want to know, and uh, a large portion of people who maybe are acting unjustly. And what does a just man do in that situation? Now, as Polemarchus says to Socrates, he says, do you see how many of us there are? Well, then, he said, either prove stronger than these men or stay here. So he's actually invoking the idea that justice, 
is a form of force, strength, which plays into that age-old, I don't know what it is, default position of human existence. I really think that the default position of human existence is power. And unless we are able to rule ourselves with deliberation and with choice, we inevitably fall into accident and force. To break that cycle of power and of vengeance and one-upmanship, we have to submit ourselves to something greater. Law, God, state, whatever it is. Um, Love. Only by doing so do we actually prove to be um, superior, if you will, above that bestial thing that is our default position. The bestial thing, by the way, which rules other beasts as well, because other beasts, even the higher primates, live primarily by a law of domination and power. Power structures, they say. Well, then Socrates says, isn't there another possibility? Our persuading you that you must let us go. Couldn't we use persuasion, that is, philosophical discourse, to let us go? And to that, Paul Marcus says, could you really persuade us if we don't listen? Or to put it another way, if we don't listen, you cannot persuade us. And here is the second of the uh, powerful uh, problems with philosophy or with discussion or with, even with mythology. If people do not listen, you can't persuade them. If they refuse to listen, you cannot persuade them. I'm reminded of that passage out of the Bible where Christ says, you know, if the people refuse your message, then knock the dust of their city from your sandals and leave. Because basically, if they refuse to listen to you, there's no, nothing you can do that can persuade them. And that being said, listening sometimes takes different forms, and words sometimes take different forms. In other words, it may not just be discourse. It may not just be arguing with people. I mean, you can do all you want to argue with someone else who has different principles than you. You're never going to persuade them. But you may persuade them in other ways. By showing them beauty, for instance, or by acting through charity. Sometimes people respond to kindness and charity more than they do philosophic argument. Sometimes people respond to beautiful art and beautiful artwork, beautiful narrative, than they do to mere words. So perhaps Socrates doesn't know of a better way, but I suspect probably Plato might know a better way. One way or the other, they all laugh. They agree to go down to dinner. And they go down and have dinner at Cephalus's place. Now, Cephalus, the name means the head or the chief, and Cephas. Uh, and and uh, Cephalus is, um, he's the guy who starts off the dialogue. Because basically he and Socrates are talking together, and, and they're, they're just chit-chatting away while they have some wine and some goat cheese or whatever it is. And um, Cephalus starts off the dialogue here and he says you don't come down to the Piraeus very often do you right um we'd like to see you more often and Socrates says well you know uh Cephalus I'm delighted to to be here to discuss with you stuff but um old men especially are fun to talk with because they're like men who have proceeded on a certain road that perhaps we too will have to take 
One ought, in my opinion, to learn from them what sort of road it is. So old men and older people, he says, we should talk with them because they've done things and seen things that we inevitably are going to have to see and do. So I'd really like to talk with you, Cephalus. I should come down even more often. One thing to consider here is that Socrates is normally depicted as an old man. But, uh, you know, I, I suspect he's probably not that old in this. I mean, he, uh, he himself, if I look this up really quickly, well, even while I'm talking, Socrates himself lived 470 to 399. So he was, I don't know, what does that make him? 71 years old when he died. 71 years old when he died. So he himself was probably five, six years out from dying. He was, he was in his 60s. So he's not saying, I'm not an old man. He wasn't ancient. But Cephalus must be pretty darn old if he's saying, you know, we should follow down the route with old men here. He doesn't seem to say, I'm an old man too. He seems to say to Cephalus, uh, you're an old man and I'd like to learn from you. Which I find kind of ironic. But maybe he's telling the young people, hey, listen up, buddies. And he asks Cephalus, basically, is it, is it difficult, you know, to, to get old? Is it, is it really tough? And immediately Cephalus joins in and he says, you know, it, yeah, there, there are parts that are, are, are tough. You lament for stuff. And, but, you know, if, if you lament about things during most of your life, when you get old, that doesn't change. You're going to lament even more about things. You're going to bewail everything. But if, on the other hand, if you are even-keeled, if you are somebody who is moderate, right, you can find peace in old age. Because, he says, in every way, old age being, brings great peace and freedom from the things, as he says, of desire, of passion. You stop being quite as passionate as you get older. And then he says, not old age, Socrates, but the character of human beings makes the difference. The character of human beings, not old age. Because if you're orderly and content with your life, even old age is only moderately troublesome. But if you're not orderly and content with your life, both age and youth alike turn out to be hard for such people. So Cephalus starts the argument, and he says something really, really profound here. He says, hoi koloi poloi, which is Greek for many fine things, right? Hoi koloi poloi. What he says is that your character uh, when young doesn't change radically when you get old. You develop your character over time, and what you devote your time to, or what you devote your mind to, the habits that you develop, as Aristotle will later say, those things end up defining you as a human when you get old. Now, every human being has to face death. We all of us have to face that moment when we are uh, going to give up the ghost, when the spirit separates from the body, whatever you want to call it. And if, for instance, we have spent our life being disordered, driven around by our, our desires or passions or being cowardly or being mischievous or whining and wailing about things... When we get old, and when we have to face death, that's not going to change. It's just going to get worse. Just going to get worse. So there's this time frame in which we can prepare for death. And we can prepare for death by trying to become even-keeled. 
trying to become that, that person who's in control of him or herself, that person who is able to be thankful for what they have rather than to bewail everything that they have. This is sort of a, a stoic philosophy, not to uh, have too many highs, not to have too many lows, but to accept everything as it comes and to deal with things right in front of you and be a realist. Cephalus says that's what prepares you for a good death. You see, in that context, philosophy is a preparation for death. Because what philosophy really is supposed to be doing is training a person to be thankful for what they have, to be even keeled, to be in control, not necessarily to think clearly all the time, although that's important too, but rather to be in control of their thinking and in control of their emotions and to be grateful for what's in front of them rather than always longing for more. Philosophy is supposed to do that for us. And in that way, it prepares us for death. Now, I want to make a quick connection here because we can also say that philosophy is something that begins in a wonder about the world. Philosophy begins in wonder, is the statement. And what we mean by that is that when we wonder about things, we marvel at things, that's when we start asking questions. What is this thing? Where did it come from? What's its beginning and its end? What's its being? What's its essence? And then what is essence? What is being? Where did we all come from? Where are we all going? Those greater and greater questions that pile up on one another are what philosophy is all about. Training a person to know what they are in the universe. And it all begins with this wonder at the world. The wonder prompts us to ask questions, primarily the question of when is this thing going to die and what is death? So Cephalus, who begins the conversation, in a way is like the beginning of philosophy. I know he's the old man, he's the one who's going to die, he's the one who leaves first in a minute, but he's also the character who's closest to death, and therefore he's the character who's asking the question most, if you will, of what is this thing I'm going to be going into, which is the beginning of all philosophy. That wonder, I wonder where all this is headed. Well, immediately Cephalus leaves the conversation. And Socrates says, I was full of wonder at what he said. See, isn't that amazing? Plato's so great. I was full of wonder. Thaumatos, right? Or the verb thaumatazo. I wondered, I marveled at what he said. Thaumatos. So immediately upon Cephalus saying what he does, Socrates has this beginning of wonder that starts him on that philosophical question. And he says, you bear old age so easily, but due to possessing great substance, isn't it? You have lots of stuff. Isn't that what causes you to be able to bear all this? Right? And he says, Cephalus says, The decent man would not bear old age with poverty very easily, nor would the one who is not a decent sort ever be content with himself, even if he were wealthy. So Cephalus says, Yeah, I'm wealthy, but that's not what makes me an even-keeled person. So then they move, the conversation moves into asking the question about money and about what wealth and having all that good stuff around does for you. 
And he says, what is the greatest, Socrates, what is the greatest thing, the greatest good you've enjoyed from possessing great wealth? Cephalus says, well, when a man comes near to the realization that he'll be making an end, that he'll die, fear and care enter him for things to which he gave no thought before. The tales told about what is in Hades, right? Thoughts about the afterlife. That the one who has done unjust deeds here must pay the penalty there. At which he laughed up to then. Now make his soul twist and turn because he fears they might be true. So as you do get old, you start thinking about the afterlife. Where are you going? What is going to happen to you? And he says that wealth allows you to rectify a great many problems. The man who finds many unjust deeds in his life often even wakes from his sleep in a fright as children do, and he lives in anticipation of evil. To the man who is conscious in himself of no unjust deeds, sweet and good hope is ever beside him. So if, for instance, you have a lot of wealth, you can fix a lot of the problems you caused and mistakes that you made. So then he says, justice then is that it's the truth of giving back what a man has taken from another. That's justice. And Cephalus says, yeah, that's what justice is. It's basically the giving back to others what you've taken, what is owed to them. Now, that's a very Aristotelian way of looking at justice. Aristotle comes later and says, justice is basically giving to everyone what is their due. And Cephalus kind of agrees to that. But he agrees to it in an interesting way. It's giving back what you have taken. And you can do that better if you're wealthy. So wealth helps you in that. But basically, it's, it, Cephalus says, it's this putting things back in order. It's, uh, it's putting things back to balance. But all of that is prompted by this idea about death and where we're headed and what's going to happen. And that's what prompts wonder in Socrates. And that's what then prompts a discussion about justice. And justice becomes the main theme of the work. What is justice? Is there such a thing as justice? Where does it go? What does it do? So Cephalus, the head, starts off the discussion of justice with his definition that it is giving back what a man has taken from another based upon his vision that we're all going to die. I find that fascinating. That basically our whole question of philosophy, our whole question of what is, what is the right way to live, is based upon the fact that all of us are going to stop living at one point or another. If we were not going to stop living, if we were immortal, this would not be a question. That's why Homer, for instance, in his great work, The Iliad, has the gods appear to be buffoons because they live forever. So what does warfare mean to them? What does sacrifice mean to them? What does even getting wounded mean to them? Nothing. Because they live forever. They never die. Immortality stops us. Whereas being mortal helps us to ask the great questions that keep us human. That's where we begin our story. We begin it with a discussion of death. Philosophy prepares us for death. And thinking about justice and what it is allows us to then move towards 
a proper understanding of where we're headed and be ready for it when it comes. It also, by the way, is going to help us, as we identify with Glaucon, to be able to escape from that dark pit that is the sense that there's nothing beyond this world. And with that, I'm going to call it a conclusion for this episode. So until next time, God bless you and keep you safe, keep you healthy. Westuhal. Here's a little tune that tells the truth. Pick up. A man ain't a man till a woman calls his name. A man ain't a man till he sets a woman's heart aflame. Till a man makes a woman obey his every rule. He's just a little fish in a great big pool. A man ain't a man till a woman calls his name. A man ain't a man till he holds a woman in his arms. A man ain't a man till he knows a woman's magic charm. Till a man kiss a woman. And here's her tender side He's just a big fool letting life pass by A man ain't a man till he holds a woman in his arms Sets a woman's soul on fire A man ain't a man Till a woman calls him her desire Till a man takes a woman And fills her life with joy A man ain't nothing but an overgrown boy A man ain't a man Till he sets a woman's soul on fire Oh yeah, yes a man 